Welcome to Recovery Recharged with me, Ellen Stewart, pushy broad from the Bronx. How does recovery work? How do you use the tools of recovery in everyday life? How do you help someone who is learning to overcome addictive behaviors? The Pushy Broad from the Bronx is here to talk about recovery in a language that we can all understand. Be prepared for real change by recharging the way you think, feel, and act. It's time for Recovery Recharged with Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Welcome Transformation Talk Radio listeners and podcast listeners everywhere. This is Recovery Recharged with Ellen Stewart, the pushy broad from the Bronx. This is a show about recovery. I want to talk about what recovery is and why it's vital to be loud and proud and pushy to say that you're in recovery. This is about how recovery works, using the tools of recovery in everyday life. Whether you are clean and sober, or whether you are someone who is learning to overcome addictive behaviors. Recovery is not a secret. It's a celebration. Recharging your recovery comes from constantly igniting the fires of change by learning to sustain recovery from working a program of healthy guidelines and healthy habits with the understanding that actions have consequences. Talking about recovery in a language that we can all understand and benefit from. Living in recovery is not just for the few, but for the many who struggle with addictive behaviors. Whether you are the addict or the family of that addict and are struggling with how to help. I want to expose recovery for what it is. Not a secret society of anonymity or steps or religion but an open forum of learning, awareness, growth, empowerment, and community. Recharging recovery comes from talking about it differently with openness and passion and being bold about what it means and how it applies to everyone. Let's take the talk out of the rooms and into the world. I am so glad to be with you today to talk to you about something that is near and dear to my heart. The topic of our show today is recovery and co-occurring disorders. The term co-occurring disorder, or some of you may have heard the term dual diagnosis, is a term for when someone experiences a mental illness and a substance use disorder simultaneously. Either disorder, substance use, or mental illness can develop first. Another word for co-occurring or dual diagnosis can also be comorbid, which means the same thing, denoting or relating to diseases or medical conditions that are simultaneously present in a patient. We are going to talk about the relationship between mental illness and a co-occurring substance use disorder. Why is it so important for us to recognize the co-occurring mental health disorder when treating substance abuse? What types of co-occurring disorders are most important? How do mental health and addiction professionals treat the co-occurring disorder? We're going to find all of this out and more as I interview this very special guest. So I thought I would bring on an expert today 
to talk to you about some of the underlying causes of addiction and mental health, and maybe you can relate to it and you can pass this information on to somebody that really needs help. Bushy Broad from the Bronx listeners, I'd like to introduce Nelson Hadler. Nelson has been providing clinical services to adolescents, adults, and families for over 25 years. Nelson's focus has been on substance abuse disorders and co-occurring psychiatric disorders. He holds a licensed clinical social work degree in both Florida and New Jersey, and he is a certified supervisor for both mental health and substance use disorder counselors in New Jersey. He is also a Florida certified addictions counselor, as well as a Florida certified supervisor for social workers. The Pushy Broad from the Bronx is, is really delighted to have with us today, Nelson Hadler. Nelson, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ellen. I wanted to talk to you about something that is very important <clears throat> to our listeners, and that's the idea of co-occurring disorders. Can you give us an idea of maybe what a co-occurring disorder is and some history behind it? Sure. Co-occurring disorder is pretty straightforward. It's a disorder that occurs concurrently with a substance use disorder. You know, someone might have cancer and they might have a head cold. We have to address both. One is obviously more serious. The concept of co-occurring disorders is relatively new. Uh, brief history, you know, in, in the 50s, if for, if for most people in the 40s and 50s, if your son or husband or wife was drinking too much or drinking problematically and you brought them to AA, they said they have a disease of alcoholism and they need to go to meetings. If you brought them to the psychotherapist, they said they're depressed and they need to have therapy. And sometimes they were right and sometimes they were wrong. So we've evolved through different names like uh, mental health, chemically addicted, which used to be uh, in the public sector, uh, a label put on per a person with two diagnoses or more. Dual uh, diagnosis was popular for a while. And we've settled on co-occurring because it can also be three things. You know, you can... Be, you can have be an alcoholic, you can be manic depressive, and you can be homeless. And we, we need to address all three things. So that's a little bit of the history. I see. So what types of co-occurring co disorders could there be coupled with alcoholism or drug addiction? Well, let's start with the mental health disorders that are in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. Um, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, you know, every, every mental health thing you can find, you know, disorder you can find in the manual. Um, usually your garden variety is depression, anxiety, and bipolar. But I've dealt with folks with obsessive compulsive disorders um, that can be just as debilitating, um, people with eating disorders and people with psychotic disorders. So it's important to identify what these things are and come up with a treatment plan that encompasses how we're dealing with the use and how are we dealing with the, let's say the psychotic disorder. You know, a long time ago, psychotic or not, I would be come to my outpatient treatment center, go to three meetings a week and get a sponsor. Even if I thought, you know, maybe you had a psychotic disorder. Now we've learned to keep in mind that 
that it might be very, very uncomfortable for that person to go to an AA meeting and sit in a room full of people when he believes he can read their mind and they're all telling him he's ugly, <laughs> which is things that, that I've seen happen. So we need to take a look at how they interact. So how would one identify whether or not one is just suffering from a, an addiction problem or there is a co-occurring disorder? Well, you have to look for it, and usually you have to kind of clear the tracks. You have to clear the, the way and get the person to stop using, rule out that there's nothing medical going on. And I use the example of an adolescent early intervention program I used to run where I would take the adolescent and, that we weren't sure was an addict, and I'd put them in a separate group called early intervention, and we'd say, gee, just stop using for 12 weeks. And what we would look for was, what, let's say that the common drug of choice was cannabis. The young person would come in smoking marijuana. They present kind of depressed. They were angry. They were irritable. They were amotivational. When, when they first stopped smoking pot, they had problems sleeping. You know, uh, all the symptoms of depression are symptoms of smoking marijuana. And there are also symptoms of marijuana withdrawal, uh, which aren't intense enough to wind one up in a detox or in a hospital, but are pretty significant. In a nutshell, I'd wait six to eight weeks to see where the young person's mood went. Oftentimes, they came back online. The sleep evened out, they weren't as irritable, they were accepting, their affect became more full, and we went, the problem was they were smoking pot seven times a day. For the young person that after eight, nine weeks, none of that changed, then we started saying, okay, let's start digging and diagnosing what this is. is are they depressed? Are they anxious? Is there something else? And oftentimes we would uncover that. And to take it one step further, maybe jumping ahead to the chicken or the egg question, oftentimes with a lot of these kids, we would identify, oh, you need to have therapy on depression or this loss and maybe take a, an antidepressant medication. And this, the chronic substance abuse would abate because they were truly medicating the symptoms of something else. Other times, we fixed the depression. We got Johnny, you know, to, uh, to take medication. He was fine. And and then after after months, we asked him, why are you still drinking? And he said, it's Tuesday. Yeah, so um, sometimes that's, do we have both or not? So it is certainly a question of the chicken or the egg, yes. certainly. For some people, it is the co-occurring co disorder, would you say, that would lead them down the path towards addiction? Yes. And then it, vice versa, yes? Is that possible? Yes. Explain that. Yeah, absolutely. I believe that some people, if we nip it in the bud and we address the inappropriate use of drugs to medicate their problem, we can nip it in the bud. There are people out there that use heroin and become physically addictive for a short period of time that counter to the norm of what you, of the folks you find going to 12-step meetings actually are able to stop once they identify they need to go through withdrawal and they need to identify the, the PTSD. At the end of the Vietnam War, we were afraid because of the rampant heroin use with our troops, we were really afraid that we'd have a nation full of addicted zombies. And a significant percentage of veterans that reported using heroin when they were in country in Vietnam came back and just stopped. 
Now, a huge, a, a lot of people suffered and continued and had to go to treatment. But there was a very significant number, it's, it's shown in research, who once we took them out of the awful environment, their heroin use abated. They self-generated, they went through detox, and they never looked back. So that's just one example of that. I believe if someone self-medicates for long enough, even if they don't have the other markers for addiction, genetic, or a lot of in-home, you know, here and now um, environmental stressors, if someone self-medicates long enough, I believe we then have to, at some point, it becomes an addiction, it becomes too ingrained. You know. That also must be true of the chronic pain management people as well. Yes. So yeah. then the pain management itself, the pain issue itself becomes a co-occurring disorders. Would, would you say that was the case? Yeah, we see a lot of folks who are, especially in the latter part of the 2000s, especially with young people, we saw this new um, gateway to opiate addiction where young people that really didn't like to party in high school, didn't drink a lot, didn't smoke a pot, you know, really didn't like it, were out there going to clubs uh, and, and they found painkillers and it helped with their social anxiety. And so they never drank and did all the gateway stuff. They did painkillers. They were doing Percocets or Roxycontin. And then after six weeks, they're out with a bunch of people and the guy that sold them their Percocet isn't there, but the guy that sold heroin is. I said, well, I heard that, you know, Percocet's actually more powerful than heroin, so I'll use the heroin. So we saw this new gateway to, to heroin use. That has become a situation today in terms of how you treat each patient. Yes. So it's a question of, is there a disorder, a co-occurring disorder coupled with the addiction, and yes. what you're telling us is we have to separate out both instances to treat them both. Would you say that yes. is clear? Yes. There's people that are not going to ever address their addiction or their psychosis without stopping the use. You can't do therapy with somebody who's high. You know, they're not going to change. So that's important for people to know. As an addiction therapist who does treat the co-occurring disorder, what you're saying is if somebody is presenting with an alcohol or drug, either abuse or addiction problem, that the first thing you're going to treat and someone that is in the field is going to treat is the addiction. Is that correct? To an extent, um, actually an acquaintance, uh, I think both of us know, used the uh, term years ago and always stuck in my head, you shoot the alligator closest to the boat. To an extent, that's true. I think it can blind you to the other alligators. I think you have to treat both. Some people aren't going to get better if you tell them to stop cold turkey. They're not going to go to rehab. They're not going to go, you know, I surrender to a 12-step program. But I've had folks that have been able to make the conscious cognitive decision. Doing heroin is really not a good idea. Um and smoking pot is kind of helping me get through my PTSD, and I'm able to get up in the morning and function. And, and I've, had, I've had clients who individually, not in treatment center, not in, not in a 12-step-based treatment program, where I've said, you know what, that, that's great right now. We'll address the pot down the line. We can, let's reduce this to a point, because now your trauma is somewhat accessible for us to work on in psychotherapy, for us to work on you know, process techniques, cognitive behavioral techniques. And, I, and I've seen it work. And, I, you know, a lot of people who are very 12-step and 
old school rehab would cringe at. You told them it's okay to smoke pot, but sometimes you have to start where they're at. I would obviously love to have the person stop at some point, but so it really needs to be individualized, which is hard to do in a facility. You know, you have a facility with the mission and the policy and procedure and, and the way they they operate that, you know, some require you go to meetings, some require you abstain from other things. I, I, I wouldn't, I run IOP programs and, you know, it comes up ever since the medical marijuana card. Well, I'm going to get my card and I get smoke pot. And most states, if you're on probation, they'll let you test positive for pot if you had the card. But any intensive outpatient program, you know, an outpatient program that treats addiction that I know of, you still can't smoke pot. You can't, you know, we, we need to ask that you be abstinent. Right. So, well, that, that proposes, of course, an interesting question, because what you're saying is that we treat the addiction depending upon the severity and usage yeah. of the alcohol or drug, and also depending upon the severity of the uh, co-occurring disorder. Yes. So it's really a balance, and, and it is certainly unique to that particular individual. And we're also, it's also coupled with the fact that treatment in the United States, and, and this podcast goes out all around the world, but treatment mm-hmm. in the United States is basically primarily 12-step recovery, which its first proponent is abstinence. So yes. Um, but in many instances now, we are graduating to a certain level of some medication-assisted attris- treatment. And we're going to talk about that and more when we come back. Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one? who's in early recovery or battling addiction. Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, on TransformationTalkRadio.com. All right, let's move on because I think it's really important and I think many people do identify with co-occurring disorders. And what you're saying initially is in order to separate out for those of us at home that haven't sought out treatment yet, one of the best ways to separate out the co-occurring disorder would be to see if you could stop using that drink or drug for a certain period of time safely on your own. Of course, one does not advocate stopping cold turkey when it is a situation of a pain medication or heroin, correct? What What do you advocate doing in that instance? Well, yeah, if it's the use is mild to moderate, um, even alcohol use, I wouldn't suggest someone go cold turkey. You can have seizures, you can fat die, you know. Alcohol, benzodiazepines, of course, heroin. Um, heroin is going to feel really bad. Um, you know, you're probably more at risk of um, more serious medical uh, issues with alcohol. 
I always suggest having an assessment and having an objective assessment. We hear that word a lot, assessment. Objective assessment. Yes. So so tell us, you know, if if those of us out there want to see if we have a situation that we have to address, what happens, where where does one go for an assessment, and what happens in the assessment process? Let's talk about that. Sure. Well, first of all, I'm a proponent of getting personal referrals, not surfing the web, calling phone numbers. There's folks out there that will hijack you. In fact, the norm today with a lot of these treatment facilities are you're talked to, you're spoken to with a non-clinical person who writes down a diagnosis without really doing a full assessment. You're then brought to the treatment facility and, and the train has left the station. You're admitted. You know, the actual biopsychosocial full-blown assessment and drug history is done three days later, which is can be very appropriate, but also can be very misused. The old-fashioned way was you came in, you had an assessment, and if, if I ran an, uh, an adult IOP and we did an assessment and we thought, you know, the, the major presenting problem here seems to be psychiatric, we'd refer to a psychiatric facility, not just say, well, hey, you're on the train tracks, come on in. A lot of folks don't do that. So it's really important to find a place that's objective. And so I usually, and it's usually more expensive if you're out of network with insurance, but to find someone who has a, a license in both, you know, when we say a co-occurring person, the person has a, is a psychologist and has some credentials as a drug and alcohol counselor or a licensed mental health counselor, a licensed professional counselor, social worker in something, or experience. And the most objective is going to be someone freestanding. So on an individual basis, one, you said some very important things. You said, number one, the best thing to do is to get a personal referral. Sometimes that's a difficult situation because not everybody wants to turn around and admit that they need help in a situation. So how do you think they should go about that? Uh, they can ask the school if it's about a, a, a young adult. They can ask their physician, what might seem like a stigma to the person, but they might, oh, Mary from the Bridge Club's husband, I know went through some kind of treatment. Call Mary from the Bridge Club. They're probably more, try to seek something like that out, you know, or ask family members if they know anybody, any professionals, you know. Yes. And I think that would be a great thing, like you said, some things to just recap for our listeners. Uh, Their family uh, general practitioner, the family doctor, would have access to those resources. Their clergy may have access to those resources. Even their attorney may have access to those resources because they may have been familiar with situations that have to do with a drug situation. And also um, maybe some family members because they have gone through things themselves. And if it is a school-related issue, schools do have um, uh, student assistance counselors that help in those placements. So that is a really good resource. Uh, Educational professionals would be a good help in this situation. Yes. Um, And I would also suggest you look and see what's happening locally because you may be able to get some insight as to how effective your local treatment centers are by um, taking a look at uh, some of the Board of Health meetings and seeing who's out there representing the town. That works as well. So that you get a recommendation that's not strictly off the web, which is great. That's a good idea. 
And you can also go to an individual counselor is what you're saying. You can go to a licensed alcohol and drug counselor and a licensed clinical social worker, somebody like you that is versed in addiction as well as a co-occurring disorder. And you would do an assessment and that would take what, approximately an hour and a half or so, about 90 minutes. I usually slate about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes. And it goes through a complete history and uh, gives you an idea of the right treatment for the person sitting in front of you. And that's the kind of assessment you need in order yes. to take it yes. one step further. Yes. Okay. I mean, one of the most popular sites, Psychology Today, you put in specialized, you know, also in addiction, and you're going to have numbers of private practitioners and you know, if you call them, I know for myself that someone called me and I thought it was out of my scope. I'd be like, yeah, I do dual co-occurring, but, you know, eating disorders, I, I, I know this person that's actually much more suited to do eating disorders than I am. And you're, you're going to get that type of response, I think, more from individual private practitioners you find on websites like Psychology Today rather than just Googling drug rehab and... <laughs> And that's a good resource, too. I find that psychology today is a good resource because you can narrow down the speciality and you can narrow down the the uh, providers that are in network with you or out of network with you. So I think that's a very important thing. All right, let's go back to some more in-depth discussion about co-occurring disorders. First of all, why is it important to identify the co-occurring disorder when you're treating um, a substance abuse client? Well, if you miss it, they're going to relapse. And when I I get a new client in a facility or comes, well, usually in a facility, my first question in the vernacular is how many rodeos, if they've been to multiple rodeos, they've been to... uh, you know, a lot of rehabs and they keep relapsing. My first question is, why has everybody been missing? What's the missing piece here? Is it motivation? Is it something that's not identified? Depression has a lot of comorbidity with addiction, um, trauma, you know. And the word comorbidity, is that the same thing as co-occurring? That's another name for it? Sorry, speak English, Nelson. Um, problems that more like, most likely occur. So what if I say, Depression has a high level of comorbidity with heroin use. Studies have shown that people with depression represent a large percentage of people that have used heroin. Okay. No, 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 that's okay. And we just want to clarify for our listeners, of course. So it's really important to identify the co-occurring disorder so that you can prevent a relapse and also try to make some headway in in allowing people to develop beyond their mental illness, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. okay. And are some people, do you think some people are more likely to have a co-occurring disorder than others? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, we look for some of the indicators. A family history of the disorder, just like a family history of alcoholism, gives us a clue, hey, gee, maybe this is a genetic predisposition to alcohol problems. You know, family history of Bipolar disorder, manic depression, psychosis, you know, can give us a clue sometimes. Uh, maybe an environmental situation, yes? Yeah, I mean, our, our first scientific understanding of addiction really grasped the idea of the biopsychosocial model 
which is you got to look at the biological cause, the psychological cause, and the possible environmental cause. So the, this, the, the biological is the genetic predisposition, which has been proven. We found the gene. It, it runs in families. You can just be born with this disease. Um, the psychological, which doesn't mean that only the weak become addicts, but, um, you know, if there is an anxiety disorder, you know, the person's predisposed to depression. These things can feed into having an addiction. And environmental, what's available in the environment? What are the stressors in the environment? What's the norm in the environment? You know, I always point out that there are cultures in the East where, you know, if you if you walk down the street drunk, you'd be you'd be stoned and beaten. But grandma can sit on the corner and smoke her hookah full of um, um, opium. So we need to take a look at what's the norm, what's culturally going on. I, I always point out if I'm a young person in some war affected country, town in Afghanistan, a lot of my friends and cousins have been killed by pe people blowing themselves up, you know, suicide bombers. I am having a super high level of stress and, and suffering from PTSD. And heroin is readily available and cheap on the street. I don't think I need a genetic predisposition to become heroin. So we, we need to take a look at all of those things. And even where the, the environmental isn't primary, it's very important when dealing with people who are getting sober to help them housing, you know, nutrition, vocation. You know, if they can't succeed in those areas, that can be a real extra. So it's a combination of not only treating the mental, but the biological, yeah. the, the physical, certainly, and the sociological, which is- And the sociological, saying. yeah. The biological, psychological, and sociological aspects of addiction are what is made up of the biopsychosocial assessment and then is the indicating factor as to what kind of treatment somebody needs. When we come back, we're going to discuss what possible treatment is available. We'll be right back. Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one who's in early recovery or battling addiction? Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Uh, what types of treatment are there for co-occurring disorders? How do you treat it? Anywhere from individual therapy to professional treatment facilities, which run from intensive outpatient treatment, which is three hours a day, uh, three to five days a week. We can increase that to partial hospitalization treatment, which is another level of outpatient, which is five hours a day, four or five, sometimes six days a week. And detox, you know, if the person needs to be detoxed uh, from a medication, from a drug they're taking. And residential. They're the main ones. Then we add our, on all those levels, 
are you co-occurring capable? And it's really a buzzword over the last 10, 12 years. We're co-occurring capable, but really how we define that is very loose. You might have a place that says, well, we have the co-occurring tract, and that means that they see a psychiatrist once every two weeks. doesn't mean that. That might be a, a facility that's licensed as a substance, a licensed substance abuse facility, but they don't have a license as a mental health facility. Then there are the facilities that are licensed as mental health that say we have a substance abuse track or program, um, and we can handle a level of substance use disorder, but they're not licensed as a substance abuse. And it's rare to have a place have both. They're out there. They're usually pretty high end. It takes a good deal of resource. And yeah, it leads me to, you know, one of the problems, and I've seen this over and over again, especially over the last 10, 12 years, the individual will present to a substance abuse facility. They'll have a co-occurring mental health problem, and they'll do great for a month. They won't use. They'll get close. They'll start to, to, to their therapist. They'll start to make some progress. And then out of a need to throw a wrench in the works, maybe fear of moving forward, all of a sudden they have a psychiatric crisis. You know, they, they make a suicide attempt. They report um, they're going to harm someone. And the substance abuse facility goes, whoa, over our head with mental health stuff. You need to go to a psychiatric facility. And then they wind up in the psychiatric IOP, PHP, residential, and they do great. And they address their psychiatric stuff and they stay clean for a while and they get close with their counselor and they start to make some progress. Then all of a sudden, you tested positive for opiates. You're doing heroin. You're, you're over our head. You got to go back. And these people flip flop. And I find that, that we really just need to take a look at not letting that happen because I've seen people flip flop for five, six, ten years. So what would you say would be the best way and the most effective way for long-term recovery from addiction and co-occurring disorders? To make sure we're looking for the co-occurring psychiatric and other life difficulties to address them. And, you know, it's, it's kind of simple, but for my folks that I treat who have you know, have, maybe they're stabilized from their depression, you know, um, I say stay in therapy. You know, a lot of the relapses happen after the intensive treatment, after the residential, you know, stay in therapy. I mean, trauma is another use, there's my big word, comorbidity, has a huge comorbidity with, with addiction and certainly opiate uh, dependency. We get folks that present to treatment with horrible traumas, and it's happened to me many times, and they will recite to you their trauma, you'll be like, awful stuff. And they're like, could you pass me the salt? They have no emotional connection to it. And it's not getting in the way of their being sober. So that's an alligator that's not close to the boat and you leave it alone, but you need to remember it's there. And especially people with trauma. I mean, my famous catchphrase last five years has been, you need to be in therapy for the rest of your life. And I actually mean it because I can't tell you how many times I've told the story of Young woman, man, two years sober, all of a sudden they experience some loss. Their boyfriend leaves them. The boyfriend threatens to leave them. A family member dies. And all of a sudden their trauma bubbles up. And they're two years out of having supports around all the time. They don't know how to deal with it and they relapse. If they had a therapist who kept saying, you know, there's that alligator over there and we're going to name it and we're going to, be aware of it. We're going to put a GPS tracker on it, and then we can avoid that. So to me, that's the best way. And the other big piece is, to, is medication compliance. I'm sorry, say that again? 
medication compliance. Okay, talk a little bit about that. Well, we're, we identify that someone, let's say, has a bipolar disorder. Folks with bipolar disorders and to some extent anxiety disorders, mood disorders, depression, have a tendency to believe at some point, I don't want to take this medication. And they don't talk to anyone about it and they stop taking it. And oftentimes this leads to relapse. You know, so I often say, do not just play with your medication and keep taking your medication. One of the, my shticks that I do with clients that have been through that, I go, let's take like bipolar clients. Go, let's take a tour of the psychiatric, psychiatric units across all the hospitals in the United States, an imaginary tour. We'll go to each one and say, hey, everybody who's bipolar, come over here. Question, how'd you get in the hospital? I'm like, You're going to hear 99% of the time either I stopped taking my meds and I started using, or I started using and I stopped taking my meds. So that's a big, that's a big piece of, I just like the stress medication compliance. Okay, well, that's a very good reason to consider keep taking medications. I've also found that as a recovery coach, people tell me I'm feeling great. I think I can go off my meds, which is an oxymoron as far as I'm concerned, because that's exactly the opposite. So the reason why you're feeling great is because you're taking the medications. And we've seen this uh, continuously. So, So I hear you. Yeah. All right, so what you're talking about then, just to recap for our listeners, that the best type of treatment for a co-occurring disorder is to work with someone that is going to treat on a regular basis the addiction and talk a little bit about that and how you can manage your disease and be in remission from that situation, coupled with a therapist that is going to talk to you about the mental health situation surrounding and either um, bringing up the fact that you want to use drink, you know, a drink or a drug or um, bringing up the situations in your life that you cannot cope with, which causes you to escape into the world of addiction. So you're doing, you're saying it takes a village is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I was going to add, you know, we have this catchphrase, the multidisciplinary treatment team, but it's very important. Um, you know, people throw that word around a lot, but, you know, when you, you have a facility that has a psychiatrist, therapist that also understand mental health disorders, case managers to help with the environmental, you know, um, physical therapists, nutritionists, acupuncturists, you know, the more, but the, the real important piece with that, especially when you, we get down to the, the therapist, the counselors and the psychiatrist is not only that they're there, but that they're connected and that there is, there's communication and, you know, they work as a village, they work collaboratively, you know, to view the person through the one lens that the facility is going to view the person. And you can have, you can have all the pieces, but if you don't connect them appropriately, a lot of times you miss the mark. And you're also talking about the fact that medication plays may play a, an integral role in a client's well-being, and that is something that they should be working certainly in tandem with with other clinicians, so that everybody knows um, the medication that you're on, and if there are signs that you are no longer taking that medication. So that's exactly. really important for us. Exactly. Um, some some places use uh, you know drug urine analysis that also uh, screens for compliance with everything from Suboxone to antidepressant medication. So to make sure the person's compliant. I need to stress what I think we all stress in our field, that there's no magic pill for substance use disorders. You know, no, nothing makes it poof go away. You know, So just taking 
your antidepressant medication, your antipsychotic medication isn't enough. You need to have some level of treatment and some level of support. And it's the same thing with matter medically assisted treatment. You know, people that just take drugs that prohibit you from feeling intoxicated while using the substance or prohibit you from having urges, that usually isn't enough. They also need, need treatment. Nice yeah. 12-step involvement. Yes, of course. Some 12-step involvement or some kind of harm reduction involvement or some kind of guided program directed towards substance misuse or substance abuse, obviously. Yes. So uh, for all of us out there that may have a loved one that we think has an alcohol or a drug problem, coupled with the fact that we see them very anxious or very depressed, or we're noticing behavior in that person uh, that is something that we think is out of the ordinary, how do we really know if a loved one has a co-occurring disorder? The individual can take their layman's best guess, but again, an assessment. And oftentimes I recommend gee, why don't you have the individual, you know, I'm a therapist or Joe Smith is a therapist, say we're concerned about what's going on, just why don't you go see a therapist rather than affronting them right in the face. We don't think it's a good idea you're smoking pot all day long and you need to go to this drug counselor. Just, you know, people that are smoking pot all day long, people that are self-medicating, people that are addicted to drugs are very kind of possessive about continuing to do so. So, you know, I usually suggest, you know, why don't you, you know, take a, a glance and run at a, at a therapist and they kind of come in light with tissues and cotton. And I always point out to the family members I work with, the high, if you get a lot of back, if you just get a lot of resistance with that anger reaction, then I go, that's done something. Then, you know, maybe you really do need to bring in some bigger guns and substance abuse interventions, setting limits, you know, whether it be simply working with a therapist on setting the appropriate limits to get your adolescent son or daughter to go to treatment or a full-blown intervention, uh, which I don't know if you want us to go into a whole hyperbole about interventions, but getting professional help to, to set limits on the individual to kind of get them in treatment. And I think the one thing that we always stress working in this industry is if, if, as a parent or a loved one watching someone going through this, you have a sixth sense of knowing when something is not right. You understand that when behaviors are out of the ordinary, the worst thing to do is to shove it under the rug and say to yourself, it will pass, or you will be accepting of a behavior that you know is a red flag. Yeah. Even if you're not sure if the behavior is something that you should be concerned about, you still can find a way to discuss it with a professional and yeah. then find a way to get that person help uh, with an assessment, which is where it starts. You make a very good point to actually to have the family members talk to a professional and be like, something's up and what am I doing? Because we all know how rampant codependency is and it's very convenient. I always say codependency is a real great coping method, you know, because dealing with someone who has a true addiction or a co-occurring disorder is a, a real pain. Yes, it's certainly not an easy thing, which is something that a recovery coach does. And Nelson have, and I have worked hand in hand on many occasions where he is treating the, the person with the co-occurring disorder, the substance misuse and the mental health diagnosis. And I am working with the family, with either the loved one or the parents, helping them navigate the situation and helping them cope with 
all of the behaviors that are coming at them and they find difficult to cope with because this is a whole language that people don't know a lot about. So yeah. here we are trying to explain in a language that people can understand that these situations should not be frightening and that something can be concretely done about them. And in addition to that, people do recover. Would you say that would be the case? Oh, yeah. Yeah, about it, that. it does happen. <laughs> so if they recover, have you seen them recover also from the co-occurring uh, um, disorder? Let's talk about that a little bit in recovery. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember years ago, a young man, it was a family friend I treated as an adolescent. He, he went on to uh, enter the field, go to college. He interned with me. And I remember him being in a group with, I believe it was a bunch of adolescents. And they were all talking about, because adolescents, especially that use drugs, have this tendency to go, you know, they want me to take medication. I don't want to put that, that unhealthy crap in my system. And I've been like, like the Percocets you're eating for a year, you know, but, you know, they have, they tend to have this. And I remember this young man that was interning looked at them and he said, without antidepressants, I would never would have been sober. It saved my life. I never could have sustained, I couldn't have gotten through the level of anxiety without it. So, you know, you might want to have an open mind. And that's a good point, because one of the things we learn about co-occurring disorders and, and some of the things that we're learning about mental health diagnosis and also addiction diagnosis, that it is in many ways a chemical imbalance. It is in actuality. It is a disease, as the American Society of Addiction Medicine classifies it as a chronic chemical brain disorder, the most recent diagnosis and definition. Mm -hmm which means that if there is a chemical imbalance, either induced by the addiction or the mental health diagnosis, there's nothing wrong with taking medication to help balance that situation. If you had, um, if you had cancer and you were taking drugs accordingly, or if you had a cold and wanted to take cold medication, medication is not something to be fearful of when it comes to this, to, to maintaining recovery in this disease. Would that be the point? Yeah, I think that's the point. You know, a lot of times people really need education. And, uh, you know, when you hit resistance, you need to look for what's the person's or family's history with it. You know, I had a family of an adolescent who just really needed medication. Just no. And I, I finally gently sat down with the mom and said, can, can I ask you, I'm not pushing this. Can I ask you, is there some history? Is there something, you're, you're very, you're, you're very angry when I bring this up. And her, her mom had been basically on the back ward of a state psychiatric institution pumped full of all sorts of drugs for 30 years before she died. So that was her perception of what I was talking about when I said medication. It took a lot of education to, you know, some uh, individuals and parents of, of adolescents are very negative about medication because we think, they think we're asking them to take a pill to make it all better. And so I do a lot of education of the difference between mood altering and mood stabilizing medication. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Talk about that. The difference. Let us know what that is. Mood altering medications are things like Valium, Xanax, benzodiazepines, alcohol, heroin. The things that if we take one, we feel a mood altering effect. And if we take 10, we fall on the floor. You know, and so the more we take, the more intoxicated, relaxed, the more the effect we have. And that temporarily masks 
the emotion and what's going on. Then there's mood alter. I mean, I'm sorry, mood stabilizing. Mood stabilizing makes a minute adjustment in the chemicals in the brain. I'm not a psychiatrist uh, nor a neuroscientist, but having the appropriate level of serotonin and, and norepinephrine and dopamine or is the is the secret sauce. And so they make slight adjustments. I like to use the analogy, a mood altering medication to a, your lawnmower is starter fluid sprayed into the carburetor, you know, where the more you push in, the more it explodes on fire and runs. Mood stabilizing medication is turning the screw on the carburetor or corner turn, letting a little more air in and adjusting the balance. So, you know, it's a lot more sensitive. And it's, it also takes patience. If you're anxious and depressed and you want to be not anxious and depressed, you know, take two footballs of uh, benzodiazepine or drink five scotches, you will have immediate gratification and at least escape from your stress for a while. If you're placed on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, which is an antidepressant medication, uh, you need to wait four or five weeks to see if it's going to work. Other people usually realize, usually report differences in you before you realize it. It is very tough. And that would mean that people have to understand that, that we have, you've come to the table here, you've come for help if you have a co-occurring disorder, if you have an alcohol and substance misuse. It's going to take a while. You may have had this for a long time. You may have had anxiety or depression for years or even decades. Yeah. You may have had your addiction situation. You may have been abusing drugs or alcohol for, for years or decades. One has to expect that the process is going to take some time. And in order to stay in remission, it, it happens over a slow period of time so that you can build a foundation. And so that what happens here becomes habitual. And so that the drugs that you're taking to stabilize your mood can really work in your system to give the kind of chemical balance you need to sustain the same mood, stabilizing, which, which obviously is very, very different from the highs and lows of mood altering drugs. Absolutely. And you, you know, you bring up a good point uh, the, when it comes to the importance of identifying the co-occurring disorder. You know, I, your person comes new to the rooms of AA and they say, keep coming back, it gets better. And it does for the most part. But you know, after a month of hearing it, and it's not better, it's worse, because you have an undiagnosed, untreated anxiety disorder. You know, it's, it's really hard to, to sell these people on 12-step stuff, so it's important. I mean, yeah, you tell a person, yeah, you know, it's like quitting smoking cigarettes. And when I did that, everybody told me, it's just going to be real uncomfortable for like two or three weeks, and then it'll slowly get better. So, like, don't expect it to be a, a, an easy miracle. But then two to three weeks later, the individual experiences, you know, like me, like many other people, like, wow, I want to hold 20 minutes without thinking about a cigarette. And a month later, like, I want half the day. So we feel it get better. But at that person, it's getting worse. If we're just beating someone over the head with an AA big book and not looking at the other piece. I mean, if someone just hates AA meetings and they can't stand them and they're uncomfortable and they're telling you, let's take a look at the reason why. A lot of times they have a true social anxiety. I've had people that I, I didn't identify they had some delusional psychotic process going on. And I keep telling them to go in a room 
uh, full of people. And I think I said before, you know, in their mind, they're all, all these people in the room are involved in a conspiracy against their life. That's not a comfortable place for them, but if you don't identify, get them on an antipsychotic medication, you know, so. So we understand that medication is very, very important as yeah. needed. Not everybody needs medication yeah. to mood stabilize. So in summing up and to leave our listeners with a final message, what do you want them to know about, uh, about how to treat um, addiction and co-occurring disorders? What uplifting message can we leave our listeners? Well, there is hope, especially if you seek out the right people. You know, I, I think my, my biggest uplifting message is there is hope. And even if the person has had multiple tries at different types of treatment and rehab, it can be the fifth time, it can be the 17th time. Sometimes something just clicks or sometimes we finally realize, oh, you know, we need to treat that, but that there is hope and, and to have an open mind. And if, if you're suffering, reach out to someone. If you're the loved one, reach out to someone. We talked about going on psychology today, finding the therapist. So if they want to find you down in Florida, how could they do that? Where, where are you working? Uh, I have an office in Fort Myers, uh, which is in Southwest Florida. I'm on psychology today. And I think my um, email is listed in the credits or something like that. Yes, I will put it up for all of us to see on YouTube, which is great. Thank and you. after 25 years of doing this, Nelson, I'm sure that you would not be doing this if you did not think there wasn't hope. Yeah, right. So that's great. Thank I you. so appreciate your coming here today and, and I appreciate your clinical expertise. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. To all of my Transformation Talk radio listeners, here are some of the big things that I would like you to take away from this particular show. First, in order to work on your personal recovery, where you're going to try to stay abstinent from alcohol or drugs or any other compulsive addiction problem that you may go through, you also have to realize that there may be a mental health disorder that is combined with that that's possibly making it more difficult for you to achieve your goal. The first thing that you have to do in order to determine whether or not there is a co-occurring mental health disorder is to go and get an assessment from a mental health professional. But even before that, try to put a little bit of distance between you and the substance misuse. You may not get a clear picture of your assessment if you are under the influence of a mood-altering substance. So if it is within your power to stay abstinent for approximately a week before you get your assessment, it would probably make the world of difference. I'm not telling you to stop cold turkey, especially if you're taking dangerous drugs. But I want you to realize, especially if you are a relapse person, that maybe there is a mental health issue going on. And sometimes it starts with a self-diagnosis. Do you find that you have mood swings? Do you find that you have trouble focusing on things? Whatever it might be, chances are we know ourselves the best. So don't shove these feelings under the rug. Take them to a mental health professional and discuss the possibility of your co-occurring disorder. This might genuinely the, be the first step in true recovery for you. Thanks very much for listening. This is Ellen Stewart, the Bushy Broad from the Bronx, and this was Recovery Recharged. 
You've been listening to Recovery Recharged with Certified Life and Recovery Coach Ellen Stewart, pushy broad from the Bronx. Don't miss your next opportunity to let me help you recharge your recovery, let go of your secrets, and change the way you think, feel, and act right here on TransformationTalkRadio.com.